Well, it, uh, it's very encouraging to be here in this congregation. I'm very thankful for the privilege of being here and the privilege of uh, looking at the passage, which uh, is one of the most uh, challenging ones that we could come to. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the Pew Bibles, 869, 869. We're going to read um, from verse 16 down to uh, verse 30. Verse 16 down to verse 30. This is uh, God's word from Matthew chapter 19. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing must I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to them, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor that you may have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Uh, usually I start out young people, something that they would remember and uh, hopefully ask their parents about. Uh, I liked the cartoon Peanuts, and you're going to have a chance to see uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas probably. Uh, it's very popular. And one of the 
characters is Linus. And Linus has a blanket. And Linus loves his blanket so much that if his mother or father uh, takes the blanket away so that he can, uh, so he can be put in the washer, Linus uh, is hysterical. Linus is crying and, and saying, why me, why me? Uh, the blanket had become so important to Linus that he couldn't imagine living without it. Now, in everyone's life, there's a challenge to us that we have things that we love so much that we can't imagine living without them. It may be a friend. It may be um, some toys you have. Uh, it could be uh, anything uh, that you have that you think, I can't live without it. But Jesus wants us to see that the one thing is to have him. If we have him, then if everything else goes, if Linus's blanket goes and your favorite doll or toy goes, you're okay because you have Jesus. That's what we want to be thinking about. Now, I'm going to also uh, read the same passage from the uh, text that I work from, and that's um, in the English Standard Version. Uh, I want to do that so that we don't get too confused as I start. You can compare it to uh, what uh, the New King James has, and they're pretty similar. This is the English Standard Version. And now, behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to, them, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Jesus said, Then, excuse me, then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Again, that's God's word. 
Let me, uh, let me pray as we uh, approach this passage. It's so memorable that um, it's repeated in, and you can compare them, in uh, Mark and in Luke. Uh, commentators like uh, J.C. Ryle and John Calvin uh, love this passage and they have extended commentaries on it. Now, uh, there's a lot to cover and we're not going to talk about uh, Jesus uh, curious saying who is good or the eye of a needle and the camel. We're not going to talk about that, but we are going to try to uh, uh, get to the heart of uh, these words. There's a lot to cover and so pray for me as we do it. Uh, Let's pray now. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word, uh, because it is uh, given through inspired men, uh, is meant for us, meant for us today. Um, We don't understand how your Holy Spirit works, but he is so great and so omniscient that he saw us sitting here this morning, hearing these words that Jesus Christ spoke 2,000 years ago and being taught by the Spirit. Uh, This is uh, remarkable to us. Uh, We thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves, don't leave us to our own inventions and thoughts. You you reach out and by your Spirit you teach us uh, inwardly. And we pray that you would. Please help me now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, There are a number of ways to look at this passage. And uh, what I decided to do is to focus on three questions. Uh, Those three questions I'll tell you in a minute, but uh, Jesus is going to correct people's misunderstanding. So we have the questions and Jesus' correction. First question is, what must I do? What must I do, young man? Second question comes from the disciples. How, who can then be saved? Okay, who can be saved? Uh, First question, Uh, What must I do? Second question, who then can be saved? Third question is, what do we gain? What do we gain? So we have those three questions, and Jesus answers each one in turn. Now, people came up to Christ. Uh, All kinds of people came up to Christ. And you can think about your own life. How many times do people uh, come up to you and ask you about the hope that's within you? Um, We live in a society where that doesn't happen very often, at least it doesn't seem to happen very often. Usually people don't ask us about our faith. Um, Now that's a a whole topic about evangelism and and that sort of thing, but here in verses 16 to 22, Jesus is going to be declaring boldly uh, about his kingdom. Now he's always done that in the Gospel of Matthew is particularly strong on talking about the kingdom. Uh, Jesus talks about the kingdom and people come up to him because they're curious about what he's saying. This young man comes to Jesus and we know from this gospel and the other gospels that he's a rich man, that he's a a young man, that he's a prominent man, uh, and that he's a religious man. He's an urgent, he's got a sense of urgency about coming to Jesus. And here he is, this well-known man, whatever his uh, public notoriety is, we don't know exactly, but he comes to Jesus 
publicly and asks him a question. Now, this is important because he's asking a sincere question as opposed to the Pharisees or the scribes who come with trick questions. They want to catch Jesus in, in his words. But this man comes with a real question. He's, he's attractive. He's religious. He's a serious man. And he's the kind of man that you'd want among your disciples. After all, he's rich. He can help fund the disciples, but, uh, but Jesus challenges him anyway. And we like having a very rich person, Jeff Bezos, come and join your congregation, and suddenly your income skyrockets. What a feather in your cap that would be to have somebody rich, somebody famous uh, in the church. Uh, instead, God gathers those who are of no account in the world. Oftentimes, as Paul says in First uh, Corinthians 1. Now, look at the question he comes with. What good deed or what must I do to have eternal life? Now, being serious about this question tells us a lot about this man. He recognizes that Jesus is the one who can really talk about eternal things. Now, people can talk about all kinds of stuff. There are all kinds of experts about uh, all sorts of fields. But Jesus is known as the one who can talk authoritatively about eternity. Now, everybody should be talking about eternity. The fact of the matter is, everyone here, unless Jesus returns, everyone here is going to die. And you're going to die and... Uh, something is going to happen. Either, uh, as some people believe, it'll be a candle that's snuffed out and you're gone, you're forgotten, or, as the Bible teaches, you face God. Uh, it is appointed in the men once to die, and after this comes judgment. And so we all will face God in the end. And the question that the young man asks is, how do I avoid hell and how do I gain heaven? How do I get eternal life? Now, what's Jesus going to do? How's he going to answer him? Uh, how will he deal with this man's misunderstanding? The first thing he does is he challenges the man's understanding of what is good. To know what is good, we have to know God. God alone is good. And we know God only in the way that he tells us to come. He prescribes. So Jesus will unfold the law of God because the law reflects the character of God. The law tells us about God himself. God reveals himself in his word, in his law. And Jesus lists the commandments. Um, and if you notice, these commandments come entirely from the second tablet of the law. They are not the first uh, four commandments, or even uh, the commandment about honoring your father. Well, it does have your honoring your father and mother. Um, now, you've got to think about this scene. You've got to get this clearly in your mind. An earnest young man is coming to Jesus. He's sincere in his questions. He has an urgency about him because he's asking about eternal life as opposed to judgment. And he comes to the lawgiver himself, for Jesus is God come in the flesh, 
Jesus is the one who speaks authoritatively about the law because he was there with Moses on Mount Sinai giving the law. He's talking to the one human being because Jesus is actually a real person. He's talking to the one human being who has perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus has come and he fulfills all righteousness and he does the law of God completely, perfectly. This young man apparently doesn't know his own heart. His bold words are, I've done it. I've done it. I've completely fulfilled the law. I've perfectly fulfilled. He's talking to the one person who has perfectly fulfilled the law, and he says, I have perfectly fulfilled the law. I've done all, all, done all of it. What do I lack? Now, can you put yourself there before God and tell God, would you tell God, I've done everything you've said. I've done it perfectly. Would you dare say that to a holy God? Well, if you are a converted person today, you want to shout to this young man, what you lack is repentance and faith. You think that you have re done all that the law has commanded you to do, but you need to repent of the fact that you haven't and have faith in the one who has fulfilled the law of God. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, and this young man doesn't realize that. He's just like so many people in our world, isn't he? People who don't think that they're all that bad. They look around, they look at bad people, and they say, that person is bad. But when they look at themselves, they don't see anything wrong. They think they're ready to meet God just as they are. Well, we have to turn from our sin to the Son of God. He came to deal with sin by his cross. And this young man, as he comes to Jesus, he comes without a clear idea of who Jesus is. Jesus has been doing miracles. He's been healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. Jesus has fed 5,000. Who is this one? He doesn't realize who Jesus is. He calls him a teacher. That's a good, honorable title. But he should call him, you are the son of God, like the demons do. Do you realize that? that the demons acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God because they're going to face him at the final judgment when he casts them into the lake that burns with fire. This man has too low a view of Jesus. So he dares to say in his blindness, the blindness of his own heart, that he's kept the law to the lawgiver. Now, Jesus uncovers this man's heart just as God uncovers our hearts. He uncovers our hearts by his word. If we're truly converted, Jesus says, if you would be perfect, that's the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. 
you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Telios. It's that same word. You must be complete. You must have reached the end. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus answering that question, the question of what do I lack, says you have to give up your idols. That's really what he's talking about because the possessions had become an idol to him. He held on to them with love and affection. That's what we do with idols. This young man didn't know what to do. He didn't know what it would cost him to give up his possessions. But we face that same problem, don't we? Because what are the things that we hold on to, like Linus's blanket? Maybe there's somebody here who's holding on to pornography, who loves pornography more than Jesus. Maybe there's somebody here who likes a perfect home where everything is in its place, where it's all just as they want it. And they're holding on to that more than they're holding on to Jesus. Maybe it's having a perfect family. Your, your children grow up and they all are obedient and they're all clean and they're all healthy and you hold on to that more than you hold on to Jesus. There are a thousand things that we put in the place of Christ and we're loath to give them up. We struggle to die to them, to die to those idols. We cling to them to our eternal damnation. Can you imagine this young man goes to hell with all his possessions? Actually, he leaves everything behind. Christ calls on us to die to ourselves, to die to ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow him. That's what Christ is calling this man to. And he walked away sorrowfully. He had the challenge of the gospel before him. And you may have talked to people who have walked away. People that you've talked to about Jesus, talked to about the gospel, and they've just walked away because they don't want to give up the things they love more than they love eternal life, forgiveness of sins, seeing God, being with Jesus. That's the first question. What must I do? And Jesus answers it. You have to die to yourself. You have to die to what you love. And you have to follow me. Now the second question comes up. Who can be saved? Who can be saved? The disciples are the ones who ask this. There's a famous anecdote about a very rich man, very well-known man, who heard uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 25 and 26, where Paul says, not many. And he says, I'm so thankful that Paul didn't say, not any rich, not any noble, not any, any of good repute. Paul says, not many, instead of not any. Because 
people enter the kingdom of God that you wouldn't expect. Jesus gives us the other side of this question in Matthew 19. He says, it's with difficulty, with difficulty that the rich enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you know the, uh, the musical uh, Fiddler on the Roof, there's a song that Tevye sings, If I were, were a Rich Man. And he fantasizes about, instead of being a milkman, being a rich man. And the rich, he said, have the leisure to do anything, to read the Torah, to give themselves over to the study of the Holy Scriptures. You know, we think that if you're rich, all your problems go away. After all, you can pay all the bills on time, and you can uh, keep your credit looking really good up in the 800s, uh, and you will be able to just take your time to enjoy life and maybe devote yourself to God. Well, the disciples know what it is to sweat and struggle to earn a, a day's wage, to catch enough fish so they can feed their family. Jesus is saying, in effect, Riches like the riches of these young men, of this young man, become like chains around people, imprisoning them, keeping them from really seeing their need. The young man said, what must I do to eternal, inherit eternal life? And he walked away from the answer Jesus gave so he really didn't want eternal life more than he wanted his riches. And people are like that. People can't break free. They are in traps of their own making. It may be respectability, the love and the respect of others. It may be being well-liked, having comfort. Your life is comfortable sexual pleasure, or all kinds of things that wrap their chains around us. Now, of course, in the Bible, we know that there are rich people who are genuinely converted. Abraham is one, and Job is one, um, Isaac and Jacob, and so forth. So it's been throughout history, there have been rich people who devoted themselves to the kingdom of God. But Jesus is saying it is with difficulty. Now the second question comes up. Who then can be saved? Who can be saved if the rich who obviously have God's favor, because that's the way the Jewish mind thought, you have God's favor if you have riches. You could look out and see this person is blessed by God because they have plenty. But God shows his favor in other ways. People are saved in spite of these things. The personal dilemma that the disciples were facing is, look, how can we be saved? We're not rich. We don't have God's favor, obviously. Our in 
complete obedience to God is what we think of. How well have you saved, served God this week, this day? Have you shown patience and love and forbearance with other people? Have you been a joyful person? Have you loved peace, been a peacemaker? Are you really living a life that's complete before God? How can you come here to worship and your mind is flitting all over the place? Thinking about dinner, thinking about what you've got to do the next day, thinking about the kids, how do you calm the kids down and all that kind of stuff. How can we be saved when we are people who hold on to things for just a minute and then they fly away? We don't measure up. What are we going to do? Because we don't measure up. Jesus' words in verse 26 should be precious to every Christian. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Think of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And the reason is clear from Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says there, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the true impossibility. None of us are righteous. We are all dead in our sins. We are all by nature children of wrath. We cannot save ourselves by doing, doing, doing like this young man hoped. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? We do and do and do endlessly. We pursue righteousness that we think we can offer to God, a righteousness that we jimmy together, putting this part and that part together. But it's impossible for dead people to be righteous. Impossible for dead people to offer to God anything but our own deadness wrapped in rotting self-righteousness. The very impossibility of self-salvation is meant to drive us to God, drive us to God for mercy and grace. The word that Jesus uses for impossible is adunaton, that which has no power, no power. Mankind has no power to deliver itself from the wrath of God. No power to gain eternal life. When Jesus speaks of the gospel, however, he gives us the good news. The good news is with God all things are possible. Dunata. In other words, God has the power. 
All things are possible with God. God is almighty and sovereign. And there is nothing that God cannot do. The evidence is there before the disciples. It's Jesus himself. Jesus is the incarnate son of God. The very second person of the blessed Trinity. He has come and he's come to our world. And he in a inconceivable way takes upon himself the sin of his people. Jesus the righteous one becomes sin that we might have the righteousness which God requires. Jesus who is all holy will be under the wrath of God for his people. I praise God for that. That is my only hope that Jesus has taken upon himself the guilt of my sin and borne the punishment that I could not endure to give me the righteousness I could never earn. The children of God are then before God, accepted in the beloved, holy, precious in God's sight. What a remarkable thing Jesus has done. This is the wonderful message the church is called on to declare. God has done the impossible. It is possible with God for you in the midst of your addiction, in the midst of your broken life, in the midst of all your failures. It's possible for you to be a child of God. God can redeem. And it doesn't come by doing. It doesn't come by anything we offer to God. It comes by repentance, faith, and trust in what God has done in Jesus Christ. This costs. It costs, and Jesus promises more than we can imagine. And that is the third question. What do I gain? The disciples think that in following Jesus, they have given up everything. In fact, if you read the early accounts in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, they walk away from their livelihood. They are leaving behind their father. Um, Zebedee is left behind, and now they are coming to Jesus without anything. So Jesus speaks to them. What do you gain? Well, let me tell you. What you gain is nothing, is nothing that you lose as compared to what you gain. Peter's reply and Jesus' question, or Jesus' words, are eschatological. That is, they have to do with the last things. Looking beyond the present to what God intends for the future. Jesus uses a, a word here, which is uh, translated variously um, uh, in the ESV. Um, it is the word or the phrase in the new world or in the regeneration. It is the word palingenesia. 
And you can hear the word Genesis there, beginning. It is a new beginning. It's the change that God brings, the tremendous change that comes in your life and my life. The despised and rejected Son of God, Jesus Christ, is sitting as the judge. He's sitting on his glorious throne. He is the judge of all the earth. All flesh must come to him. He will judge the living and the dead, and he will welcome his children into his kingdom, saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Jesus Christ will bless each one of his children with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. The unending praise that God's people will offer to the Father and the Son is only beginning when we die and are translated into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples, according to verse 28, will have a judging function. That's something that we can't get into. But Jesus goes on to talk more generally. And this puzzles people. Anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, there are Christians for whom today... uh, The losing of father and mother, of brother and sister, uh, is true. Uh, You read Voice of the Martyrs uh, magazine and you find out about Christians in India and Pakistan who, because they believe in Christ, are cast out of their families. Bible-believing Christians will suffer in some way, and maybe you have seen it. If you deny yourself and take up your cross daily, If you love uh, the kingdom of God more than you love this world, you will say that there are costs, no doubt about it. There are costs, costs and loss of friends, costs and loss of relationships, costs and loss of opportunities. But Jesus promises more than we can imagine. The apostle Paul tries to put it into words in 1 Corinthians 2.9. As it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't imagine what it means because Jesus is talking about covenant fulfillment. Covenant fulfillment means God keeps all his promises. All his promises that he has made to his people through the centuries, God will fulfill. These blessings are not immediate. They don't happen right away, but they come certainly and surely. Eternal life brings a joy that is unspeakable. Blessings beyond what you can imagine. The last thing Jesus says in this chapter, in verse 30, is a reminder, a warning. He uses this phrase a number of times. Many who are first will be last and the last first. In other other words, don't look at positions in this life to equal positions in the world to come. God is sovereign over who he exalts and who he humbles. What we're called on to do 
is to become servants of all, ready to serve others without regard for what comes our way by way of honor. God is free to raise up the praying mother in Nigeria over the mega pastor here in America. Instead, we need to focus on serving one another. This passage is so rich and so full, I know that you will want to read it again and again and again. You see, though, how these verses answer pressing questions, some of the most important questions that anyone can ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Who can be saved from evident, uh, evident, if evident blessings don't do it? What do we gain from following Jesus Christ? And what Jesus does in answering, correcting their misunderstandings is wonderful. He says, deny yourself and your earthly loves by repenting and believing, which leads to eternal life as you follow me. It's impossible for us to save ourselves, but God does what is impossible by awakening dead hearts and giving new life. We gain all the promises of God by following Jesus Christ and an eternity of seeing God's blessings. I mentioned earlier J.C. Ryle. He was an Anglican at the end of the 19th century and a very wise pastor. And in commenting on these verses, he had something that really speaks to our day because our day is ex experience-oriented, feeling-oriented. Uh, how do I feel about something determines uh, whether it's true or not, that kind of thing. And this is what uh, Ryle said. We must never forget that good feelings alone in religion are not the grace of God. We may knew, know the truth intellectually. We may feel pricked in our conscience. We may have religious affections awakened within us, uh, many anxieties about our souls, and shed many tears. But all of this is not conversion. It is not the genuine saving work of the Holy Spirit, because the genuine saving work of the Holy Spirit is to make us hope in Christ, trust in Christ, believe in Christ, follow Christ, and say no to sin. That's the work that God does. He destroys our idols and the things that we love so that instead of loving this world, we love only the Savior. Praise God. Let's pray.